this morning and that I'll be teaching in the passage next week really serves as a continental divide in the book of Mark. It uh, not only marks the halfway point, but it really divides very clearly the book, the Gospel of Mark, into two very distinct sections. Um, The first part of the book of Mark, Mark in essence is asking this question, uh, what is the identity of Jesus? In other words, who is Jesus? That's what he's been asking all the way through these first eight chapters. The last half of the book, the last section, really begins to ask a completely different question, and it seeks to answer the question, what is Jesus' purpose? In other words, why is it that he came? Why did God send him? And so this morning, what we're doing is we're going to close the first section, and I pray by the mercy and the grace of God that we will leave all knowing who he is, knowing who Jesus Christ is is the, the desire. Then next week for Easter, we'll begin the first part of the last section and try to specifically determine his purpose and why it is specifically that he came. Well, as that video began in the very beginning, it began to state that there are a lot of questions that we ask, and there are a lot of questions that can be asked in our life, and a lot of those questions that we ask, uh, some of them are more important than others. There are some very vital, very important questions that each and every one of us ask through our life. Some of us begin to ask the question, even as a a child, what will I be when I grow up? In other words, what will my occupation be? What will I pursue? Some begin to ask very early is, will I go to college? Will I not go to college? Big question, how will I pay for college, right? Young people. Um, Sometimes we begin to ask important questions like, will I marry? Who will I marry? How many children will I ultimately have? Um, When can I retire? Now, it seems like the question more is, can I retire, right, ever? You know, those types of questions. And for many people, if you stop and think about it, those are, in essence, the most important questions they will ever ask of their life. And they're important because these are questions that will ultimately determine the trajectory of their life, where they go, and, and how their life oftentimes will turn out. But there is a question that is far, far more important than all of those. All of those ultimately being put together, a question that every single one of us must ask ourselves because it's a question that will not only radically determine how we live in this world, but it also determines the place and how we will live for all eternity. And that question is, who is Jesus? What is his specific identity? Now, if you've been tracking with us through the book of Mark, you'll know that really Mark has already answered this. He answered it actually back in chapter 1 and verse 1. There he wrote the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He identifies Jesus for who he is. He's the Son of God. A couple of verses later, during the story of Jesus being baptized, John the Baptist baptizing him, uh, Jesus comes up out of the water. And then in verse 11, the Father affirms his identity. By saying, he says, you are my beloved son, and you, I am well pleased. And then a little bit later, we find in Mark chapter 1, in verse 23, we see that the demons recognize who he is. And that verse, the Bible says, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We see the demons recognize him again in Mark chapter 3 and verse 10. Mark begins to explain that people with demons begin to come to Jesus. And when they do, the Bible says, And they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. 
Then in Mark chapter 5 and verse 7, again in the demoniac, the man that was possessed with a legion of demons, he falls before Jesus and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me or what have you to do with us, Jesus, son of the most high? Now what's interesting is Mark, the author writing the book, he identifies who Jesus is. God affirms that identity that the, the demons as well can't help but to express who Jesus is. But if we've noticed so far in the book of Mark, no person has come to the realization of who Jesus really is. They've seen a bunch. They've heard a bunch. They've heard a lot of teaching. They've seen many miracles. But they still have not yet achieved, not yet come to truly, in its purest sense, understand who Jesus is at this point. Now, what's weird about this book is that, that, that the people that you would think that would be the most quickly to come to realize who Jesus is don't have a clue who Jesus is. The religious leaders, we've seen them, right? I mean, they are the experts of the law. They have it memorized, the entire bit of it. They know every ounce of it. They are experts in it, and yet they don't know who Jesus is. They don't have a clue. In fact, they think that he's of the devil when they ask them who he is. Then, of course, those that, what's interesting about the book, again, is those that we would think really have no chance of really knowing Jesus and knowing who he ultimately is, they seem to have a better sense of who he is. For example, the woman who was unclean that was struggling with the issue of blood, she seems to understand Jesus better than the professional ministers and pastors. The Syrophoenician woman who would have been hated by the Jews, she seems to love him and understand and be more committed to him than even his own people, the Jewish people. And, and we'll see a story that I'll reference in a couple minutes. Even a Gentile man who is blind, he seems to see Jesus, maybe not for exactly who he is, but to see him more clearly than what the Jewish people do. Even his own disciples up until this point don't know who Jesus is. And their problem is they don't have a category for Jesus. I mean, where does this guy fit I mean, what do we do with him? Do you remember the story that we taught about Jesus stilling the storm? There they are. They think they're about to die. Jesus is sleeping in the boat. They say, Jesus, don't you care that we die? Don't you care for us? Jesus gets up, says, do you still not believe? And then he speaks. He just speaks a word to the sea and to the wind, and it becomes calm. And the disciples at that point ask this question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, it's easy for me and it's easy for you. We love to do this. We love to pile on the disciples, right? (laughs) How can you not get it? How can you not understand it? How can you be so hard of heart? How can you be so so slow to understand? And it's easy to jump on, but to be honest with you, I really don't think it's fair. Because remember something, something's been going on in this story. Scholars call it the messianic secret. All the way through the book of Mark, at least specifically in the first half, Uh, nobody knows who Jesus is, but it seems like that's how Jesus wants it. Have you noticed this? It seems like when the demons are like, you're the Holy One of God, he's like, shh. And he rebukes him and he says, don't you say say that to anybody. Then when Jesus goes and he heals people, supernatural healings, right? Even raises some people from the dead. He has to tell the people, they're all rejoicing. They want to tell somebody, hey. And he sternly warned them not to tell anybody about what he did. And then when Crowds begin to gather around, right? They all come and they want to hear Jesus. They want to see Jesus. Maybe it looks like they're figuring out who Jesus is. What does Jesus do? Explain it? No. He hightails it off and he slips away to a lonely place, away from the crowds, just with he and his disciples. Up until this point, Jesus' identity has been secret. Jesus has made it secret. But now he wants, 
it to be known by his disciples. And so this is where we find ourselves beginning in verse 27. And there the Bible says, And Jesus went on his way uh, uh, with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, now, where they find themselves previously, right before this, the text in verses 22 through 26, they were in Bethsaida. It's where Jesus heals a blind man. I'm going to reference that story in just a couple minutes. I didn't actually preach on the text, but I'm going to allude to it in a couple minutes, explain it a little bit. It's going to help us understand what's going on here. Uh, but what's interesting is he's in Bethsaida. That's where the miracle takes place. And then he, he, he marches 25 miles North, about a full day's journey for them, maybe a little bit more, and they find themselves in this area of Caesarea Philippi. And it's there that Jesus begins to ask his disciples two questions. And he says, the Bible says, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, this is the first of two questions that he asked them. But before we get into how they respond to Jesus, I want to draw your attention to one little phrase. And that little phrase is, on the way. And if you're just reading, you know, going through your Bible study, that doesn't seem very significant. But when you begin to just kind of give just a a cursory reading of the next couple chapters, you find out that that phrase is being repeated time and time again. So between chapters 8 and chapters 12, we see that phrase on the way being repeated nine different times, which tells us there's some significance in this. And when we go back to chapter 1 once again and look in verse 2 and verse 3, when, Jesus is ex- when, when, when Mark is explaining who Jesus is, he quotes from the book of Isaiah from the prophet, and this is what he says. He says, who will prepare your way? He refers to this way. And then he says again, he says, prepare the way of the Lord. There's that way again. What's this way? Well, let me, we're going to see more of that next week, but let me just say this. The way is both a place and a purpose. When it says he's on the way, he's on the way to Jerusalem. That's specifically where he's going. Up to this point, if you were to map out where Jesus was going, I mean, it would just be a rat race. I mean, he was all over the place. Didn't seem like any rhyme or reason. It'd be just a bunch of sketches. Now he's making a beeline to Jerusalem. Why? For his fulfillment of his purpose. What's his purpose? He's going to die. His purpose is to go to Jerusalem. It's a journey of humiliation, of rejection, of suffering, In death on the cross, he was born to die. And we're going to talk about that much more next week. But now at this particular point, they're on their way. And Jesus asks this question. And the reason he's asking this question now is because before they can move on, before they can continue, before he can show them what his purpose is, they have to first understand who he is. And so what Jesus does is before they're on the journey with Jesus, he says, before I show you what you're about to see, teach you what you're about to see, I need to know that you trust me. I need you to make a judgment of who I am. Enough time has gone on. Now's your time to decide who in the world I am. One author says it this way. He says, Jesus asked for a judgment about him in the midst of the journey, not at the end of it, when all questions are answered and proof is finally in hand. Faith is a judgment about Jesus and a willingness to act on the judgment in the face of other possible judgments. In other words, in order to see what lies ahead in our journey with Jesus, we must first demonstrate faith in Jesus for who he is. Faith precedes sight. You believe before you see. Now that's completely opposite of what we like, right? In other words, what we say is, we say, hey, Jesus, if you will show me, if you will show me, 
then I'll have faith in you and believe. You guys understand that? Right? It's kind of like this, how many Christians I've taught. Listen, you've got to trust Jesus. You've got to trust Jesus in your marriage to do what God has called you to do. I can't trust him. It's so hard for me to trust him. I wish he would just show me how this whole thing is going to end and how this whole thing is going to work out. If he would just show me, then I would come to faith. And I sit there and I tell them, you couldn't come to faith if you knew how it ended. It's just the opposite of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us exactly, it defines faith for us. What does it say? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence or the convictions of things not seen. Jesus can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt to you or else you could not come to faith. We see, say, Jesus, show me and then I'll believe. You ever see lost people like that? Show me the evidence and then I'll believe. No, you won't. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, not by seeing And so we say, hey, show me, let me see, and I'll believe. Jesus says you need to believe in order to be able to see. And that's what Jesus calls us to be able to do. And so here, Jesus, as he's navigating through all of this, he he says to him next, he says, he asks the question, who do people say that I am? And so even though no one at this particular point really knew for sure who Jesus was or his identity, they did have some ideas, people around the, you know, Water fountain, coffee pot, you know, Monday morning, sitting around, Sunday morning actually, so sitting around going, so what do you think of Jesus? And so they all have different ideas. And some of them, we begin to lay this out, they begin to think, and as you see here in the scriptures, that some said that he was John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now what I want you to notice is, it's brilliant the way that he asks these two questions. Because what he does first is he doesn't ask them what they believe, he asks what others say about Jesus. Now, I love that because it doesn't put you on the spot. Let me, let me explain how you guys always put me on the spot. Hey, Brother Mike, what do you think as far as the eschatological events in the end times? Are you a post-millennialist? Are you pre-millennialist? millennialist What are you? And here's what I like to be able to do. Well, let me share with you, first of all, uh, what uh, Augustine really said about some of this, our early church fathers said about this. Let me then explain kind of how the reformers navigated, and they kind of shifted this way just a little bit. Then in the 1900s, there was this pre, and I can explain all these different things and all these different views, and then we get to the end, and I'm hoping that's going to satisfy you, because the truth of the matter is I don't have a cotton-picking idea about how most of that is going to work out. I know all the views, but then you say to me, yeah, but what do you believe? Oh, man. Why? Because what does it do? It causes me to commit. It causes me to commit to something and stand firm on something and ultimately defend something, right? So what Jesus is saying is, the first thing he says is he's not too confrontational. He just says, what do people say? And you know what? That's easy. Let me tell you what everybody believes that you are. So they give a couple of opinions. The first one he says is John the Baptist. Now this is the second time that we've heard this opinion that Jesus was John the Baptist. You remember back in in Mark chapter 6 and verses 14 through 15. uh, There Herod Antipas believed that it was John coming back from the dead. Not because of good theology but because of his own guilty conscience of killing John the Baptist. You remember that? So he believes it's John the Baptist. Well, listen, this would have been a pretty good compliment for Jesus. Why? Because people greatly respected, the Jewish people greatly respected him. They knew that he was a prophet of God. And stop and think about something. They hadn't heard a true word from God for 400 years. 400 years of silence stemmed from the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. They hadn't heard a word from God, and now there comes a true prophet of God crying out in 
the wilderness. This is the only prophet that they knew, that they had actually seen with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. There's great affections here. For, so for them to say that Jesus is John the Baptist, in essence, come back to life, is, is a pretty high view of Jesus. But there's a second opinion. Some said that Jesus was Elijah. Now, of all the Old Testament prophets, Elijah was probably one of the most fascinating of all the Old Testament prophets. Why? Not because he performed the greatest miracles. There were other prophets that performed greater miracles. Moses performed greater miracles. Even Elijah, the, 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 the prophet that came immediately after him, performed even greater miracles than he did. So why was he so fascinating to the Jewish mind? Because he never died. That is kind of fascinating, isn't it? The Bible says that he was taken up in a fiery chariot. He never died. And, and so people are like, well, what's he going to do? He's never died. Is he going to come back? Is God going to use him in another way? You know, what, what, what's going to happen here? And so they're always constantly looking for him. But then Malachi comes on the scene. And Malachi in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he writes of the fact that Elijah then would come during the final, to a, a, a final eschatological judgment known as the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so we know through the New Testament scriptures that that Elijah that Malachi was speaking of was one like Elijah. It was John the Baptist. But they were enthralled with the idea that Jesus might be Elijah. So having such a high view of Elijah means that they would certainly have a high view of Jesus. Third option that some would ultimately suggest that he was one of the other Old Testament prophets. From the time of Moses, he stated in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15 and 18, he said that God would one day raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Ever since he said that, they were constantly looking for the next prophet to come. They were looking for the next great Moses. Who could it be? And still, they're still in the same exact pattern. Is this the next great prophet that's coming once again? And the idea is this, is all three of these views are high views. They're very complementary. Here's the problem. They're not high enough. They're just not high enough. It's probably the best compliment that they can give him, but the problem is, is what they're saying is Jesus is just more of the same. What they're saying is, oh yeah, they're complimenting him. Hey, listen, if you said to me, it, the guy that was preaching through that whole thing, the, 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 the black pastor that was preaching that thing, if you said, man, you preach like him, I'd be like, yeah, that's awesome. Maybe someday I could preach like him, right? I'd be all fired up. Many of the people during the day, if the, 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 the different teachers would say, man, you're like John the Baptist. That probably would have been complimentary, but it's not complimentary to say, Jesus, you're like John the Baptist, or you're like Elijah, or you're like someone else. It would be like somebody saying today, say, you know what, Jesus was a great man. He was one of the greatest teachers the world had ever seen, one of the greatest moral teachers of our time. In fact, he's probably the greatest moral example in the history of mankind. And we would do good to emulate him and to be able to follow him and to do as Jesus did. That all sounds so good. Oh, but it falls so far short of who Jesus is. And so at this particular point, this isn't a sufficient, this isn't a a, a real picture of who he is. So Jesus now is going to draw his attention to his disciples. And he says to them, and he asks them, he says, but who do you say that I am in the Greek? The word you is plural, So he's looking at his disciples, but yet at the same exact time, he's asking each and every one of them to individually make a decision at that moment of who Jesus is. So he asks the question, and then, of course, what we find is that they answer. And surprise, surprise, it's Peter that answers first. 
I know that's hard to believe that Peter would actually be the spokesperson and speak up first. And we're so hard on Peter, aren't we? Peter, open mouth, insert foot. He's going to do that in the very next section. We'll see next week. Jesus has to say, hey, like, calm down behind me, Satan. You know, we'll, we'll get into that next week. So he's all, but this time, guess what's cool? He gets it right. Let's give him some credit where credit is due. He gets it right. He, he, he turns to Jesus and he says, you are the Christ. The first person to get it right in this book is Peter. The one we always like to make fun of. He, out of everybody else, gets it right. He says, you're the Christ. What does he mean when he says that you are the Christ? What is he saying? The word Christ, translated in the Hebrew, is the word Messiah. And the word Messiah means to anoint. And there were three different groups of people in the Old Testament that were anointed. To be anointed means to set apart for God's own unique purposes and special purposes. And there were three groups of people that were anointed in that way in the Old Testament. There were the prophets, there were the priests, and there was the kings. And they were all set apart. But here's what's interesting. In all of the Old Testament, there was not one of those men who held all three of those positions. And what he's saying here by Jesus is the Messiah, he's saying that Jesus is not a prophet, he is not a priest, he is not a king, he's saying that he is the prophet, the priest, he is the king. He's saying and he's elevating Jesus above all else. He says they are but types And he says, but I am the fulfillment of those types. He says, they are but the shadows. And he's saying, but Jesus, you're the objects that cast those shadows. He says, they're the pointer. And he says, but you're the point. You're the point. He goes, they're not as great as you are. So all the other, listen, all the other responses of what everybody else thought that Jesus was, they're just pointers. And they were missing the point. Jesus was the ultimate point. So he recognized him. Listen to this, this faith. How did he know this? He recognized it through scripture, through the word. He saw Jesus and he noticed that he matched up to all the Old Testament prophecies. He knew that he was the Messiah. Well done, Peter. Well done, Peter. But you know, even though he gets it, he doesn't fully get it. Have you ever known somebody like that? You're like, they get it, but I don't think they really completely get it. Have you ever... Done that with your kids? Are you under? That's why you say when they're like, do you understand? Yes. And then you go, do you really understand? Yes, yes. I don't think you really understand, right? And so Peter's kind of the right way. He gets it at first, but he doesn't understand the magnitude of what is ultimately going on here. And so how do we know that? Because Peter still has the same view of Messiahship as all the other Jewish people during the day. What the other Jews are doing is this. They're they're waiting for the great military Messiah to come to be able to wield a sword and to be able to cut down their enemies, free them from bondage of the Romans, and to set their people free. But what Jesus is about to tell them is that Jesus wasn't coming to kill the enemies of God, but he was going to die for them. He was going to die for them. And so before Jesus explains to him very clearly about what kind of Messiah he is, he first has to come and believe that he's the Messiah. Do you see that? Now, here's the interesting thing. What's interesting is we see, now I want to refer back to verses 22 through 26. Here's a story that I didn't preach on because I was saving it for today. And and here's what we understand. Let me just tell you kind of what's going on there. Jesus is in Bethsaida. There's a blind man, a Gentile, who comes to Jesus and basically says, you know, and he begs him, Jesus, I can't see Touch me and heal me. 
And so here's what Jesus does. Jesus comes over, interesting way, by the way, to uh, heal somebody. He spits in his eyes, all right? You know, here's spit in your eye, right? Just spits. And then he lays his hand on the guy's eyes, right? And then he backs off. Then Jesus says, do you see anything? The guy wiping the spit out of his eyes. Hey, it's the Bible, all right? So wipes the spit out of the eyes. He sits up and he goes, yes. He goes, I see men, but they seem to be walking around. Like trees. So he sees something that he's never seen before. His eyes have been opened by Jesus Christ, but he doesn't see everything clearly. So then Jesus goes back, and he lays his hands on him again, and then he backs up. And then the Bible says specifically that he saw everything clearly. Now what's up with that, right? You ever read a passage like this, and you're like, what do I do with this? I mean, how am I supposed to interpret this? Is Jesus just having an off day? Is Jesus shooting blanks, miracle blanks? Is this, you know, miracle arm, like, kind of all worn out? Is he, you know, is it is just kind of like, man, I, listen, guys, i got to go back and stretch out just a little bit, man. I threw one down, try to heal this dude, but, man, it's, people are blind, but this dude is really blind. Let me, let me give this a second chance. This is the only place in the Word of God that we see a two-stage miracle. What is he doing? He's giving a physical illustration of a spiritual reality in the disciples. He was letting them know, you're not going to see the whole picture at once. He was, I'm going to reveal truth to you, and the first truth I'm going to reveal to you is who I am, the Messiah. But you're not going to see everything clearly at that point, because you're going to have a misconception of what this Messiah is really all about. And he says, and what's going to happen is it's going to be in stages. You're going to see that I'm a Messiah, but then I'm going to teach you what kind of Messiah I am going to be. And that is where we're going to pick up next week. But I think that there are some, some application here with this. And this is where God has been burning in my heart just in light of this passage. I knew we weren't going to have time to be able to do the whole thing, so I had to cut it there. Three points of application. Let me give them to you. If we know him, if we truly know the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us boast in him and not ourselves. There's something that is interesting about the parallel passage over in the book of Mark. Over in the book of Mark, or excuse me, in the book of Matthew, the parallel account, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 17. Here, uh, Matthew adds something to the story, and Jesus said to him after he declared that he was the Messiah, he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The scriptures say again in John chapter 6 and verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Just like the picture of the man, the blind man being healed, the only, he couldn't heal himself, he couldn't give himself sight. He was completely independent upon the person of Jesus Christ. And so I wonder sometimes why we might be so boastful as believers in Jesus Christ to think that we are something because we see him for who he is. And sometimes we may look to others and belittle them and go, how hard-hearted, how hard-headed can you be? Don't you see? Don't you understand? As if we had something to do with our sight. If we see Jesus, if today you truly see Jesus for who he is in a way that you see him as Messiah, you see him as a king, you see him as the only way to be saved and your sins to be forgiven, and you see him as the propitiation of your sin towards God, turning away and satisfying the wrath of God towards your sins, and that is a reality in your heart, and it moves your heart, and it grips your heart, it's because God gave you sight 
It is not because you are... What distinguishes you between your lost relative? You're smarter. You're more righteous. You're somehow better than them. No, it's because God gave you sight. I don't know about you, but that fills my heart with worship and with joy. Jesus, why? I, won't, I don't know why. Just serve me. Just love me. I gave you sight. That's grace. Thank you, Jesus. If I boast, I boast in him alone. Second thing, if we know him, let us faithfully pray for those who do not know him. Let us not complain about them. Let's not look down upon them. But let's pray for them. Now, this is what church growth movement would do for you today. Ready? Here we go. I'm going to give you an insight. Bookstore's full of it. This is what you need to do. Full of it. I could go on with that, but I probably better not. Here's, here's where they go. We're going to tell you how to grow the church, what you need to do. Start with beanie weenies. Get beanie weenies. People love hot dogs. If you get some good hot dogs, people are going to come, brother. People, you're going to win people with hot dogs. Win people with hot dogs. Then follow that up with donkey booth time, man. Have a carnival. Get people coming in. Throw a couple rings. If they couple th- throw a couple rings, you give them a little prize that's worth like minus 2% or 2 cents, and you give that to them, man, that's going to be a way for you to be able to reach these people, Right? And so what we begin to do is we begin to do some of the craziest things you've ever seen to try to win people to faith in Jesus Christ. And what we do is we package an infinitely valuable message in toys that were made in China. I don't understand that. I think what we ultimately do is the wrapper needs to match the inner part the sweetness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? It's fully and complete dependence upon Jesus Christ. He said, what do we do? Just get in our own homes and pray that people come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's a part of it. But instead of me trying to convince somebody or trying to fool them or slip them a Mickey and go, hey, come get a hot dog. We're going to share the gospel and try to get you to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Here's what you do. Just give them the gospel, man. That's dependence on Jesus Christ. His faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. For once, believer, just open your mouth and give him the gospel. For it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. Just get the God. How do I get the gospel? Just share the gospel. Forget the foldy thing. Forget the toy, the hot dog, whatever. Go eat a hot dog. Great. But share the gospel and pray. Sit back and go, Jesus, save them. Save my kids, God. Why? Because the only way that they will open their eyes is through you. Some people sit back and go, oh, that's so devastating though. Only God can answer. See, what's devastating to you is encouraging to me. If Jesus can open their eyes, then it doesn't matter where they are, what friends or whoever it is, God can open their eyes anywhere. Let us be dependent on him. The third thing, if we know him, let us seek him. Let us value him. Let us love him. Let us submit to him fully. Let us pursue him above all else. If we see him for who he is, if we see him as the treasure in a hidden field, let us pursue him. See, here's what's happening in Nassau County. We know this this easy believism saturates our culture 
just come and believe. Do you know Jesus? Yeah, I know that he was the son of God. I know that he died for our sins. I, I asked him into the God-sized hole of my heart. But there's no radical transformation. There's no change. Read the book of James. Read the book of 1 John. All those who are in the faith, who have true faith, it demonstrates through their pursuit in life, through their actions in life, through their speech in life. We're not saved by those things, but God saves us unto those things. The evidence that we truly know him is we love him. Amen? We pursue him. We submit to him. May we do that in the name of Jesus. Do you know him? Do you truly, truly know him? You know when you know him because here's why. God supernaturally regenerates you. Inside, you just know that something's changed. Your appetites change. Now the things that you used to love to do, now you hate to do. Do you still do them sometimes? Yes. Why? Because you're in the flesh. But God's given you a new want or a new desire. That means that he saved you. How did he do it? By grace through faith alone. But what do we place our faith in? The completed work of Jesus Christ. We recognize that we are enemies of God, that we have sinned against him. And because we've sinned against him, that we are worthy of death and eternal death But God, in his great love, sent his only son to die so that the righteous wrath of God that had to fall would fall on Christ as a substitute for us so that we might go free. And when you recognize that you're a sinner and recognize there's nothing that you could do to earn your salvation, you can't be good enough, but only through his goodness you place your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. You repent of your sin, you turn, you say, this is no longer what I pursue. I now pursue Jesus. And through faith, grace through faith, God saves you. You know who Jesus is. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for the